This is Thanasi Kambanis, and you're listening to the TCF World Podcast, episode 39. Today, we're continuing our conversations about progressive foreign policy and what a smarter, more effective U.S. foreign policy could look like in the Middle East. Today, we're joined by Mara Carlin, Director of Strategic Studies at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. She's joining us on the phone from Washington, D.C., and I'm here in New York with Michael Wahid Hanna, another senior fellow at the Century Foundation. Uh, today, we're going to go uh, for a three-part conversation. We're going to begin by asking her about the details about what a uh, differently configured U.S. presence in the Middle East could look like. Uh, in the second part, we're going to talk about grand strategy and American priorities. And in the third part, we're going to talk about uh, implementation and defense budgets. Uh, so, Mara, thank you so much uh, for agreeing to come on the podcast. Thanks for having me. To get us rolling... Uh, I'd like to to hear you sketch out the sort of unwritten last section of a lot of uh, uh, articles that are out there, including articles by you, uh, which make a compelling case that it's time for a smaller, different U.S. footprint in the Middle East. Uh, and I want to know uh, in in actual tangible specifics, bases, uh, presence, troop numbers, uh, countries that were involved in, what would a reconfigured, smaller footprint U.S. presence in the Middle East look like? Great. That's a really important question to ask. Obviously, one wants to start with the strategic perspective. You know, it's uh, dangerous and misguided to think about the U.S. military's presence in the Middle East only based on the post-9-11 environment. As you no doubt know well, the U.S. military has been involved in this region for decades and decades, and the uh, contours and parameters of that military posture has changed over the years. Because ideally, your military posture is, is, uh, is, is tied to the threats that you're worried about either today or going into the future. So given the nature of the threats in the region and how they're shifting, and I think given, frankly, the uh, much uh, higher imperative to worry about both China and Russia in Asia and Europe specifically, um, the U.S. does need to reshape its military posture in the Middle East. Uh, first, I would say the U.S., um, focus has been overwhelmingly on the military tool of statecraft in the Middle East, and that should really be recalibrated. I'd like to see a whole lot more diplomacy, a whole lot more development funding, you name it. Um, second, as we talk very specifically about this idea of reshaping the, the furniture, if you will, in the region, so U.S. military bases and assets and personnel in the region, um, I'd want to suggest a couple changes, which I've written about with my colleague Melissa Dalton from the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And effectively, we, we've emphasized a couple of key points. Um, there are things that one can take out of the region. For example, um, the the uh, the ground pro presence can absolutely be diminished. The forward headquarters, uh, particularly the combatant command forward headquarters and service forward headquarters, can be diminished in the region. The uh, persistent presence of a carrier strike group can also go down. Former Secretary of Defense Mattis deserves some kudos for starting to make that change. Uh, but there are also things you'd want to keep in the region. You'd want to keep special operations forces to some degree. You'd want to keep ballistic missile defense systems, some capability for securing maritime waterways, intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance capabilities, and logistics and enablers um, that should allow you to do all of these things. Uh, now, mitigations are also really important. So figuring out how are we working with partners in the region and allies out of the region 
to help aid security there. And of course, you also want constant reassessment to figure out if the security landscape in the region is changing in such ways that everything I've just suggested actually needs to be thrown out. Well, some of our, our, our hugest installations, I'm thinking about the, the bases in the Emirates and Qatar. I'm thinking about the Fifth Fleet headquarters in Bahrain. Uh, and then to a lesser extent, our, our bases in, in Iraq. Uh, what, what's, what's your thinking about what we do with all that infrastructure and all those people? Absolutely. So it, it is good to have a distributed force posture. Part of the reason that the military likes to do that is because you might uh, be pushed out of a country either for political reasons or because of natural disasters. There's all you know a bunch bunch of examples that we've seen o- over the years in, in other regions where um, you know a country has had a base and then it's been moved out for for various reasons. You also want to have a distributed force posture uh, in case the country. Uh, that you're based in maybe doesn't want your military to take certain actions from its territory. So you want to be in a number of different places. Uh, Breadth matters, uh, but depth is actually worth rethinking. So you could actually skinny down uh, the size of the the headquarters and the bases in in pretty much everywhere that you've just cited particularly as it relates to the ground presence. So is, is your idea that we would probably have bases in all those places, they would just be smaller? Uh, on the whole, absolutely. The one that I might rethink in particular would be Kuwait because that is overwhelmingly a ground presence. And I think when you look at the challenges in the region today and going forward, the need for a really heavy ground ground posture isn't really as necessary. What about, uh, I mean, so the, the Fifth Fleet, I, I've heard the idea and it, it makes sense to me, but it's not my expertise, uh, that we don't actually need a permanent base for the Fifth Fleet and that it would be, uh, you know, we would we could reduce the moral hazard of stationing it there and maintain the strategic benefit by having the Fifth Fleet uh, uh, offshore and and not on a, in a base. I think that deserves serious exploration. You know, this moral hazard point is a really crucial one. And I think oftentimes when kind of defense thinkers look at these issues, it's hard for them to acknowledge this moral hazard. I mean, we saw this obviously when things got pretty sporty in Manama a couple of years ago. There is this impression that the U.S. will support the Bahraini government because of the Fifth Fleet. And, um, and, and so one at least wants to sort of acknowledge that having that presence does present some pretty serious moral hazard. Moreover, if we're just focused on the operational aspect, um, there are absolutely a ton of different ways that you could get the same operational uh, benefit offshore. The challenge is you would then need to maintain a pretty continuous presence offshore. Uh, So it would um, take some sort of toll on the readiness of your military assets. You know, one of the interesting challenges that I think has really been presented uh, by this issue when we're looking at it at a time like 2019 is sort of this, this sunk cost argument. When you're already in a bunch of places, any, um, any change is therefore seen as a negative and is seen as, as a real problem. Um, and I think that's why, frankly, uh, it's so hard to have this conversation. Right. It's not as though the the region is sort of spectacularly peaceful um, at this moment. And one feels like, you know, you you can just leave with a a great big victory banner, for example. Uh, And and so it is hard to acknowledge that shifts in posture actually make a whole lot of strategic sense. 
Well, and and I recently visited the uh, the Aludeid Air Base in in Qatar, which is enormous and is about to double in size. And this is one of these freebies where the Qataris are going to pay for it, um, and the U.S. is is going to get this increased capacity. I was wondering when I when I saw this this expansion in the works in in Doha, whether this gives America all kinds of great free extra capacity or whether it's essentially a, uh, an entanglement that, um, the more, uh, the more of this kind of capacity we have, the more likely we are to be sending surveillance flights or having bombing runs over Afghanistan. And the more likely we are to keep doing these things that, uh, are easy to do if, if it's there to be done, but don't actually necessarily, uh, suit our, 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 our security interests. Mm. So I might rewind a little bit uh, to spend a moment on the American way of war. So effectively, the, the American way of war uh, involves the U.S. military going out, projecting power in kind of military parlance, and fighting fighting wars in other places, right? On the whole, you know, when you look at wars fought on U.S. territory, say, over the last hundred years, it's, a, it's you know, profoundly different than you might see with just about every other region. Um, we're, we're blessed by geography and Canada and Mexico. Um, and, and so the, the idea of, um, uh, of whether or not just being there means we will do things, I think is somewhat questionable uh, on the whole. I mean, there are, there are kind of serious and meaningful national security interests that the United States does have in the Middle East. Having a presence uh, and opportunities to collaborate with partner militaries around the region um, on key challenges does, you know, can also make a lot, a lot of sense. Where I think you are hitting the nail on the head, however, is this idea of, um, of sort of our experience coloring how we think about the future. So if you're a senior U.S. military officer in 2019, you have almost surely spent the overwhelming bulk of your career in the military going in and out of the Middle East. It's the thing you know. It's the, you know, those are the languages you've studied, the countries you've studied, the places where, where you just have the most experience. And that's particularly meaningful because the national defense strategy is effectively trying to say, wait a second, this is actually much less important and we need you to shift and rethink your focus on and relationships in regions like Europe and Asia. Just uh, thinking about what Tanasi is talking about, the purpose um, and, and the kind of motivations uh, of actions um, building off of this, this massive infrastructure, um, what is this infrastructure as it's, it's currently grown into? You know, what is it there for? I mean, it, to some extent, this is about contingency planning, thinking about things that could go wrong, um, uh, potential conflicts. Uh, is this uh, an infrastructure created that uh, uh, to be able to allow for, uh, for instance, um, a ground war, a ground invasion? Um, you know, what is this infrastructure meant to do? So in theory, this infrastructure is supposed to help the U.S. military deal with contingencies as they arise. Obviously, in a post-9-11 environment, that has been sort of a nonstop endeavor in the Middle East specifically. And so, you you know, for example, you have a lot of pretty capable um, air platforms that are will come out of places um, like uh, like Al Dafra or like Al Udaid that will go and um, and, and conduct strikes kind of in, in all sorts of parts of the region. Or same time for kind of the maritime piece. If you've got uh, the Fifth Fleet out in Bahrain, they're going to be sailing around, you know, making sure Strait of Hormuz is secure, et cetera. So 
the 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 sort of posture writ large is supposed to be kind of knit together to help the military deal with the threats that exist today and tomorrow. So it's important that the U.S. military's posture is tied to threats, but also to challenges that might become threats. So in kind of military parlance, this is known as shaping operations, you know, fig- figuring out um, kind of what what are the changes in the security landscape? How are you working with allies in different regions and partners in, in this region to understand what's really going on and, and try to deal with problems when they're ideally smaller? If, in fact, you reshape this posture, uh, you think about the ways in which um, uh, you can thin it out you know, what are what are the and what are military planners going to worry about? What are the capacities, um, if any, that are going to be negatively impacted by that kind of uh, uh, of move? Absolutely. So military planners are supposed to worry all the time. I mean, that's that's kind of their job. And if they're not worried, then then they're probably not succeeding. Um, the the issue is is one of prioritization, and um, and if at the strategic level, the national defense strategy has said. We need you to worry less about terrorism and insurgency, and we need you to worry less about the Middle East. Then I suspect military planners will be trying to figure out how do they get as much juice out of the, you know, for the squeeze of the posture as it exists and as it, as it diminishes. What are the opportunity costs uh, posed by by kind of these changes? And in particular, what are the risks? Um, this is, you know, the issue of risk in national security circles is so visceral and so complicated. Um, the very best description I've, I've kind of ever heard about risks is differentiating between heartburns, you know, heart, heartburn, uh, you know, you get into to some sort of fight or heart attack, you lose a, a fight. Um, and it's really crucial that military planners have those kind of frank and honest conversations among themselves in terms of who holds the risk which I, I should note is the senior civilian leadership. Um, and, and what does that risk, no kidding, look like? We'll be right back. At a time when the focus of politics is on being the loudest voiced and not the most informed, the Century Foundation delivers thoughtful, evidence-based policy leadership with purpose. And we've had a lot of practice at it, 100 years in fact. I'm Michael Wahid Hanna, and I work on US foreign policy and Middle Eastern politics carrying on a tradition that TCF's founder began in 1919. Our approach is simple. We sweat the details, doing the hard work today to ensure policy progress tomorrow. In the century ahead, we'll continue to prioritize rigor over reactivity, elevate the best ideas and most diverse voices, and never lose sight of what it takes to make an impact. If you want to help write the progressive headlines of tomorrow, support us today. I'm Thanasi Kambanis. This is the TCF World Podcast. We're talking about grand strategy and a uh, reconfigured U.S. presence in the Middle East with Mara Carlin, the Director of Strategic Studies at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Mara, uh, before the break, we were talking about um, the sort of nuts and bolts, uh, the details of a, of a smaller U.S. presence. Um, and now I want to turn to something you've also written extensively about, which is uh, grand strategy and, and sort of 
getting the the big goals right. Uh, so what are the actual core uh, national interests uh, that, that are at, at stake for the United States in the Middle East? Uh, and, and also, I mean, as, as we have this conversation, I, I want you to help us figure out uh, uh, in a world in which there's a lot of things that kind of matter, uh, how do we differentiate first order priorities uh, from important but second order priorities? It's good that you're raising this issue. It's a difficult one to talk through because the United States, of course, is a superpower and has global interests unlike any other country in the entire world. Um, every other country spends a lot more time thinking about the United, thinking about the United States than, than Washington ever will. Um, when we think about grand strategy, if you will, and that's a term I'm more than a little skeptical about, but we can we can talk more if you want uh, on that front. When, when we talk uh, at that level, it's important to recognize that there are power shifts happening in the global landscape. And those power shifts mean that for the first time in a long time, the U.S. is now facing a competitor in China. And that competitor has a, a different vision of what the kind of international order should look like and is not hesitating to sort of poke holes in, in the order as it exists. There are other competitors to be sure, like Russia, but China China's really kind of the one one has to worry about the most. So therefore, at the strategic level, it, it seems pretty clear that the United States needs to worry increasingly about great power competition, needs to worry about the possibility of conflicts that look very different than the sorts of conflicts it has been engaged in since 9-11. So less of a war, less of a prioritization in terms of focusing on violent non-state actors, for example, and much more so in terms of thinking about state militaries. So what does this all mean for the Middle East? Because I've just told you that actually other regions matter more. And I've just told you that when you think about the spectrum of conflict, other types of conflict actually are, are more important than they were, relatively speaking, like conventional conflict or even thinking about nuclear conflict. It's important to note this doesn't mean that the Middle East doesn't matter anymore. Um, I, I think a lot of folks would really like to sort of close the door and lock it on the Middle East and then run away. Uh, but that is just simply impractical in every which way. And obviously, you know, there there is the great case study of um, how the Syrian civil war has helped destabilize Europe to remind folks of that. So it still matters. But relatively speaking, the Middle East matters less. So the sorts of things that matter, a rough degree of stability containing violent non-state actors the, uh, and, and maritime security, I'd say are kind of three key pillars that still matter. Again, they, they matter less. And these aren't issues that are only U.S.-centric issues, for example, right? So, so our European allies, for example, also care um, about um, kind of diminishing uh, the, the success of violent non-state actors. Um, our European and Asian allies, for example, care a lot about maritime security. So if this region does matter less uh, to the United States, one key question that Washington has to ask itself is how will it work with others, both in the region and outside of the region, to help um, facilitate its national security interests? You talk a lot uh, there about cooperation potentially with 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 other countries, particular uh, particularly European allies. Um, should then should we care about the notion of of American primacy in the region? Um, does that matter to uh, broader competition with China in the future? 
It absolutely does. However, it is more important at this moment that the U.S. focuses on countering China in Asia and Russia in Europe. I think um, there are some folks who try to argue that the Middle East still has to be the top priority for the United States because Russia, for example, is mucking around all over it. That is true, and yet it is still not the top concern. If you can't actually seriously establish deterrence against um, a competitor inside its own region, um, doing so in another region will be much more superficial. And and Mara, I was wondering, uh, as I was listening to you, about uh, the Carter Doctrine and the sort of leading role the U.S. has shouldered since the 70s now for uh, protecting uh, market access of most of the world's oil. Why is that a U.S. responsibility, uh, given, given that that's something that benefits literally everybody? It absolutely does benefit everyone. And it should be a U.S. responsibility and a whole lot of others. Ideally, this would be one example where the U.S. would help convene key partners and allies to try to knit together an effective coalition for maritime security. That doesn't mean that the U.S. needs to even play the overwhelming role in terms of its own kind of assets and platforms. But it is useful that uh, for the United States to be the convener. And I think in general, that, that's a pretty decent maxim. Um, Washington being a convener vice, uh, kind of Beijing or Moscow is, is generally pretty good. Well, so there's a, there's a lot of costs uh, to, to reconfiguring. And that's something that, that um, I'm really interested in your take in as well. You, you wrote um, recently in Foreign Affairs about this. Uh, we've written about this too. But, well, we, you know, we just recently wrote uh, uh, in favor of pulling the U.S. troops out of Syria despite real costs of doing so. Um, and I think in any of these cases where if you're going to reduce uh, the U.S. military commitment, the U.S. will lose some things that are useful. And Robert Satloff in his uh, uh, reply to your foreign affairs piece uh, basically made the case that, you know, anywhere where we get something out of using the military, uh, we should never give it up. Uh, and and I think that's glib, uh, but it, but you you just referenced Syria, where not you know not uh, intervening more forcefully might have have carried some costs. Uh, so how do you how do you see uh, the U.S. strategically talking about, for example, increased disorder, increased uh, civilian death or displacement uh, in the, in this region uh, as one of the consequences of of a U.S. drawdown? So as you no doubt know pretty well. Um, the options that we're kind of weighing uh, here are kind of awful versus catastrophic. Um, there is no butterflies and unicorns option inconveniently. Well, we, we're in favor of butterflies and unicorns at the Century Foundation, but <laughs> I, I guess you're right. I, I also like butterflies and unicorns. Um, I, I have yet in sort of decades of work at Middle East policy f found that. But if you find that, please let me know where I can get it. Um, yes. So, so, but, but that's an important point to acknowledge, right? We all inherently know it, but it, it, it is important to know, right? We've seen what the costs have been of the U.S. unwillingness to intervene in Syria. Um, and we can imagine had the U.S. been willing to intervene earlier, it also would have been pretty ugly. So it, it becomes kind of a matter of degree. And, uh, and that, that's really uncomfortable. But whenever one thinks through policy options, we have to acknowledge there are serious opportunity costs and serious trade-offs and, and often just a lot of ugly. Um, you know, it, it seems to me what's particularly important is to be 
willing to acknowledge what we are willing to do and what we are not willing to do. Uh, You had mentioned Syria, which is kind of a perfect example here. You know, it, it has been, the U.S. policy has been pretty convoluted at various times uh, in Syria. And I think the last seven months are kind of a particularly uh, great example where the U.S. military's mission there is not entirely clear. And that fuzziness is not just worrisome to me as an American taxpayer, but worrisome to me because I I fear that our uh, adversaries, frenemies, and competitors may also misunderstand what the U.S. military is trying to do. We've been told the U.S. military will be pulling out and then that appears to not at all be the case. So, so what are you willing to do and what does that actually look like, I think is, is crucial. Now, if there is a decision to actually, no kidding, pull out, and it is one that is not just announced via Twitter, but actually comes to fruition um, and the Pentagon pulls out, uh, one would want away what you lose. And, and the, it, it seems to me one of the key things that you lose is the ability for civilian uh, experts from the U.S. government uh, to go in and out and to try, try to facilitate um, the situation in Syria. So that, that is a cost. But if at the end of the day this administration decides it's not interested in playing any sort of positive role, then at a minimum we just shouldn't delude ourselves in terms of what our presence is buying us. It can be really hard to have that honest conversation, um, you know, about what what the U.S. military presence does anywhere. I think Syria is also a good example because we've heard all sorts of things like, um, you know, the U.S. military's presence at Atan Garrison um, is uh, uh, kind of a a serious way to push back uh, on Iran's bad behavior. Um, When in reality, it's probably at best an irritant to the Iranians, and even that's probably being slightly too generous. So no kidding, what is it that we think we're trying to do here? And to what extent have we advertised what that is? And are, you know, kind of do, do the pros outweigh the cons? Uh, so you mentioned the need for an honest conversation. Um, you know, the deployment in Syria is pretty small in terms of our overall footprint. Um, and to be able to have that kind of honest conversation and, and major rethink, um, it sort of presupposes a, a rational politics, an environment in which uh, real discussions about strategy and priorities uh, can happen. And yet, uh, if we look at domestic politics in, in recent years, uh, if we look at the reaction to the Joint Comprehensive Plan uh, of Action, uh, the Iranian nuclear, nuclear deal, um, the discussion that ensued uh, um, after the, you know, the, in, the indeterminate announcement of, of a withdrawal from Syria, um, all of these things don't suggest that that the country or at least the uh, American political life can bear um, this kind of discussion. Um, how do you how are we supposed to imagine uh, a major rethinking of American posture in the world in this current cl- uh, political climate? I definitely agree with you that we are living in anomalous times and complicated to say the least. Uh, it seems to me though, it is still incumbent on all of us, whether as, kind of citizens or as national security wonks or what have you to at least try to have some sort of meaningful discussions, be, be at a minimum b- behind closed doors. You know, uh, Winston Churchill has this wonderful quote, um, however beautiful the strategy, you should occasionally assess the results. And that um, 
you know, I, I sort of wish that that could be taped in, uh, you know, up on the wall of every conference room in, in Washington in particular. So there are opportunities for assessment, and those opportunities in particular are best when they are required. So I'll just give you one quick example. Um, the Defense Department is required every four years to put out its defense strategy. So the last one came out in uh, in January 2018. It was issued by Secretary Mattis at, uh, at Johns Hopkins Sice. And uh, Congress had decided about a year before that they didn't just want to hear every four years what the strategy was because they recognized strategies have to be dynamic. You have to be cognizant of what's going on on the ground and, and kind of how, how what effect are you having or not having, et cetera. So Congress levied some new homework onto the Pentagon and said, every four years you have to give us the strategy, but every year you have to come to us and tell us how your strategy is going. You have to give us an assessment. What's working as you thought it would? What's not working? What have you been able to implement? What haven't you been able to implement? And I think that's just such a terrific forcing function and, and sort of would like for that to become as regular a part of you know, the, the battle rhythm as, as possible. Mara, what are the wars uh, in the Middle East that, that the U.S. should be concerned about looking toward the future? So obviously today the Middle East is undergoing all sorts of security challenges, to put, to put it lightly. But there are a couple that, from a U.S. perspective, would be particularly problematic. Um, so one, of course, just involves violent non-state actors. So this would be, you know, what happens from an ISIS 2.0 um, or some other group that we ha- we haven't thought about that, say, conducts an attack on the United States or on a close ally of ours. What what does that look like? So that would be one thing to worry about. Another one would be, what if um, you know, what if now that the the Iran nuclear deal has has been blown up. Um, the Iranians do choose to pursue a nuclear weapon um, and manage to actually get their hands on one. What 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 would that do um, in terms of Iranian behavior, um, both I- inside the region and, and outside the region, and how might it work with others or not? Uh, how how does that change things? Um, another contingency that one would worry about would be um, the Syria spillover. So right now, um, Lebanon, Jordan, for example, uh, and Turkey have all managed to say relatively stable um, and, and Israel, uh, despite serious spillover. But that obviously could end up seriously undermining those countries and then leading to some sort of, uh, of U.S. intervention. And then uh, a fourth one, um, and this is, of course, illustrative, not, not by any means exhaustive, would be the, the issue of maritime security. If you started to see, say, some real efforts to constrain maritime security and impede it, uh, attacks on energy supplies, for example. Um, all of those are just a, a handful of examples that the U.S. military um, would need to worry about and may need to play some sort of role in. Obviously, the the kind of uh, contours of that involvement differ greatly by each of those, uh, but, but they are real. Should we think about terrorism by groups like ISIS as a, a- a problem to be managed and contained, or should we think of it as a zero-sum uh, problem that we need to completely eradicate? I think the latter is impossible and delusional, to be frank. But it um, has, but it has been a driver of, of much policy thinking since nine eleven. I mean, I, it has, it has, and yet the primary way that the United States and, frankly, a whole lot of other countries has has dealt with it has been primarily using the military tool, and yet we know that. 
these threats don't just emerge um, because of security reasons, right? They emerge when governments are not advocates for their people and other violent non-state actors do a much better job doing that or delivering services to their people or there are no kind of real opportunities um, for, for their citizens. So, uh, you know, if one really wanted to pursue the latter, one would need a serious and meaningful whole of government approach uh, to, to dealing with terrorism. And um, while, while in theory that might be nice, it's really hard for me to conjure up that actually happening. We'll be right back. All around the world, pluralism and rights are under threat. Communal violence, authoritarianism, and religious identity politics have eroded the value of citizenship. The Middle East has been at the leading edge of this global crisis. That's why the Century Foundation convened a working group to study efforts to create inclusive rights and citizenship. Our research looks at ideas that support universal rights for all, regardless of their racial, sexual, ethnic, or religious identities. And while our researchers looked at the Middle East, our findings apply just as well to every country facing this crisis. You can explore our findings at the Century Foundation's website, tcf.org, by clicking the Citizenship tab. I'm Thanasi Kambanis. You're listening to the TCF World Podcast. I'm here with Michael Wahid Hanna in the TCF office in New York, and we're joined on the line by Mara Carlin, uh, the Director of Strategic Studies at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Uh, She's talking to us from Washington. Uh, Mara, thanks for joining us. Uh, We were talking uh, before the break about grand strategy and and about the tough political choices, um, and that leads into the final subject we wanted to talk about today, which is implementation. Uh, we started talking about the politics, but let's uh, uh, let's talk about one of your special areas of obscure expertise, which is defense budgets. Um, what should we be spending money on and, and how should we, uh, in your view, uh, change, uh, uh, reform, alter the, uh, the defense budget and the process that we create it through? What a fantastic topic. Um, you know, obviously, we're talking about a pretty decent uh, chunk of change. So you're talking about more than $700 billion. Um, the the amount is uh, almost mind-boggling. And I'll just it, say it, it was- It is mind-boggling. It is. And it, it was really um, neat to sort of think through how to spend that money when I worked in the Pentagon. And now that I'm a professor trying to find like internship money for my students, <laughs> I realize that that a rounding error might be nice. Um, <laughs> the, so to all the listeners who want to donate to really smart size students to be able to do unpaid internships, <laughs> I've made that pitch. Um, uh, so what should we spend our money on? You know, the number one responsibility uh, of a secretary of defense is thinking about what are the wars that the U.S. military has to prepare for? What are the wars that it is fighting? And what are the wars that it has to focus on in the future? And that has to be directly tied to how are you spending your money? And I say that kind of strategic um, kind of point perspective aside, because it means that you need someone who's willing to choose winners and losers. You know, it, it seems like with 700 plus billion dollars, everyone gets to be a winner, but that's actually a terrible and a strategic approach. But it is often the case. If you ever want to be disheartened, look at uh, how um, funding is divvied up across the military services. It's, it's actually uh, pretty close to one third. Um, and, and that doesn't make any sense at all. So we need winners and losers. What should that look like today? 
The National Defense Strategy is a pretty decent document, I think. It talks about looking forward, the need to focus on competing with China and Russia and preparing for the possibility of conflict with them. So given that, you would want to spend your money on the most relevant assets for both competition and preparing for conflict. So thinking about um, what, what kind of high-end conventional conflict might look like, what are the advanced kind of air and maritime platforms one might need, munitions, for example, um, other innovative aspects of technology that one might take advantage of. Um, that also means there has to be some losers, if you will. And the, the losers are always really hard to push because, um, first of all, this might all be wrong, right? We're just guessing at what the future security environment looks like. So folks may, may, may think this isn't actually what the future, future parameters w- will be. Moreover, um, you're hitting pretty serious parochial interests if you're going to have losers. So um, my personal view is we shouldn't be spending as much money on things like the army and strength on surface ships um, uh, as just kind of two two key examples. I think the F-35 numbers could absolutely um, be decreased. I think one could rethink um, how much is being spent on the nuclear triad. Uh, But on the whole, that's really not the approach we've seen from the Trump administration in recent years. Instead, they've just taken an everybody's a winner uh, approach. And that's really problematic because they have written this strategy that is dramatic and, and it talks about the possibility of the U.S. military potentially losing a high-end conflict in the future. That could look like literally tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of casualties. So we should see big changes, and yet that hasn't quite been the case yet. So there, in terms of implementing this national defense strategy um, that offered a, a, a somewhat new uh, approach and vision for U.S. priorities— um, you haven't seen uh, evidence that, that 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 strategy is is driving uh, budgetary processes at all. I've seen a little bit of evidence, but it's unsatisfactory. You know, the um, the Obama administration's Pentagon had tried to make these this change toward great power competition. If you look at it, the strategy it put out in 2014, for example, it was slowly trying to trying slowly and and sort of clumsily, if you will. Uh, trying trying to make that shift. And I say that as someone who, who was part of it and not terribly successful. Um, inconveniently, uh, ISIS chose to take that moment to run all over um, Iraq and Syria, and, and in particular to, to kind of d- delay some, some meaningful progress. So what I would say is, is this administration has made some progress. I mean, part of it is just being pretty clear and blunt and pithy about what the strategy is. They have made some shifts in terms of funding, but it's been pretty imperfect. There is, if I can recommend uh, reading material for your listeners, there's a bipartisan commission, the National Defense Strategy Commission, that published a report um, last fall, um, and the effort was chaired by Eric Edelman and Gary Ruffhead. And it's a pretty, um, I think, uh, serious take on what the strategy has been able to do and what it hasn't been able to do. And um, and it, it shows that kind of some steps have, have been taken, but on the whole, we haven't seen the resource changes that are necessary. We haven't seen the emphasis on operational concepts that, that are necessary. Um, and the report uh, highlights the real nadir in civil-military relations that has, has particularly plagued us at this moment. Uh, spoiler alert, I worked as a staffer on that commission, so if there are things wrong with it, let me know. 
Well, you know, one thing that does seem to have, have changed in, in recent years, and I think markedly so, um, are attitudes towards China. Um, and there is now a, a much more uh, robust discussion about competition uh, in, a, in a hard-edged way. Um, and, I, and I do wonder at some point if it, it takes on a kind of self, uh, self-fulfilling uh, momentum. Um, is, there, um, is there a danger now in terms of trying to um, divine an animating rationale for, US, for the U.S. role in the world um, that we are stumbling towards um, not, not necessarily an unnecessary competition with China, uh, but uh, you know, perhaps a much more harder-edged version of that than, than might be necessary? I think you're raising a really crucial point. It it is good that a lot of folks across the political spectrum have recognized that there are some serious challenges posed by China, not just in Asia, but globally, and not just militarily, but politically and, and economically. But how we deal with this challenge matters a lot. So for example, if, if I'm worried about um, another power that's trying to kind of eclipse the United States, I sure would want to spend a lot of time tending my Uh, allied and partner relationships around the world. And that's not exactly been the hallmark of the Trump administration, to put it lightly. And and the flip side is that uh, if we look at what happened during the Obama years, in in cases where the U.S. worked really hard to tend relationships, it often found those allies uh, supremely unhelpful despite being treated with a lot of respect and collegiality. Um, and that's raised a lot of questions for me, especially when I think about Saudi Arabia or Israel or Turkey, various other uh, problematic partners um, uh, and allies. Uh, and, it, and it does make me frustrated when I think we've now seen two very different approaches tried, neither of which, I mean, the second one's obviously a terrible idea, but the first one seemed like the right idea and it didn't pay off as, as I hoped it would. Well, I wonder if we might not push that a little bit further. And think about how and in what ways these allied or partner relationships have have paid off and in which ones they haven't. Um, so to the extent, of course, that you've got countries that are really worried about regime security, which I think describes like just about every country in the Middle East post-2011, um, you know, and that being kind of the, the top priority, um, you know, what are the things that they've been helpful on and what are the things they haven't been helpful on? So there appears to be some evidence that Saudi Arabia has been pretty helpful in terms of things like intelligence sharing. Um, it's, you know, and, and that's particularly meaningful if you're thinking about, say, the fight against ISIS. There is obviously a ton of evidence that Saudi Arabia has been profoundly unhelpful, say, in its war in Yemen um, or in kind of its efforts to destabilize Lebanon, for example. Um, so I, you know, not not to keep going back to Churchill, but he was pretty sage, and uh, you know, he tells us the only thing worse than having allies is not having them, and I think there's really something to that, and and uh, this idea of kind of the honest and frank conversations that I brought up earlier, uh, that that should also animate um, how we think not just about kind of future security challenges, but also about what we can no kidding expect from our allies and partners. And what do we really care about with them? You had mentioned Turkey, and Turkey is obviously a fascinating example these days, given uh, the the dynamics the U.S. faces with Turkey vis-a-vis the YPG, the S-400 sale, and F-35s. But at the end of the day, uh, Turkey is a a member of NATO. And if... um, if the the threat posed by Russia is actually a pretty serious concern, 
um, then taking any meaningful steps against Turkey would, would pose some pretty serious consequences. Well, Mara, we have a lot more questions, but I think we're running out of time. Uh, so we're going to end here. Uh, thank you so much for your time. And uh, we look forward to seeing uh, your your future writings on this issue as we try to hack our way through the awful thicket of uh, the Middle East and U.S. policy there. Thanks so much for having me. PCF World has been brought to you by the Century Foundation, a progressive public policy think tank that seeks to foster opportunity, reduce inequality, and promote security at home and abroad. For more information about our work, please visit tcf.org or follow us on Twitter and Facebook.